episode 349, How Integrated is a Clinically Integrated Network, Actually. Today, I speak with Lisa Trumbull. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. This interview today with Lisa Trumbull is mostly about clinically integrated networks, CINs or SINs, what they are, how they work, how data gets shared. Furthermore, we talk about hybrid SINs, meaning, for example, a virtual front door that might lead to in-person care. After that, we talk about the potential impact of direct contracting, which Lisa says could significantly change the healthcare marketplace. The hybrid talk, by the way, is towards the middle of the show, and we talk about direct contracting. That's near the end if you're short on time and you want to skip around. But before we go there, let's just level set a little bit, shall we, on the topics of accountability and integration as general constructs. Specifically, what's the impact, or lack thereof at times, when a provider is not accountable for patient results? I'm talking here about fee-for-service in general, where the provider is not accountable for patient results. Like if we're talking about a fee-for-service world and what it incends, it goes like this. Transaction happens, somebody sends a bill, the end. I mean, in a fee-for-service world, the patient encounter may be the highest or the lowest value patient doctor transaction in the history of humankind. But either way, the payment is the same. So the incentive is to figure out how to encounter lots of patients and or upcode wildly, I guess. The incentive is not to coordinate care or teach a patient how to take advantage of a telehealth offering to mitigate some social determinant of health or spend 10 minutes doing some education or shared decision making or establishing rapport and being culturally sensitive. Any docs who are doing that stuff are doing it on their own time in an FFS world. Here's the good news and the bad news. And I don't often hear it spelled out this bluntly, so I'll do the honors. If anyone wants to get paid to create patient health, they have to be accountable for the outcomes created, upside and downside. Frankly, when an organization is super worried about the downside, that could be, not in all cases, but it certainly could be a clue that maybe their approach is a little bit more transactional and or inefficient than perhaps they would like to admit. There's been much talk over the years about the importance of giving patients, you know, so-called skin in the game. But what might work out better is to mandate that providers have so-called skin in the game. Providers have to be accountable so good providers can reap rewards and bad ones don't. The episode with Sunita Desai, by the way, episode 334, is all about how providers have proven to actually be better consumers than consumers. (laughs) So there could be a constellation of rationales here. Now, if you're accountable for care, you must actually create outcomes, as just discussed. And to actually create outcomes, there must be integration. Integration is necessary. Care coordination is necessary, both with internal and external other providers and entities. There are very, very few cases where like a chronic condition can be appreciably improved by a random assortment of 7 to 15-minute patient encounters. Managing chronic conditions requires a longitudinal journey that weaves together most often more than one doctor, also nurses, and a PA, and a speech pathologist, and a nutritionist, and a certified diabetes educator, and maybe a physical therapist or two. 
Considering that 85% of healthcare spend in this country has to do with chronic conditions also, yeah, integration is really required. And yeah, how many decades later, we're still talking about interoperability. Here's a tidbit I found kind of apropos. Female doctors make $2 million less, apparently, over a 40-year career than their male counterparts. That's per research in Health Affairs, recently reported in the New York Times. More men become surgeons, and women have been shown to spend more time with their patients, leading to fewer services that can be billed for. Hmm, what's the actionable takeaway there, I wonder? Today, I have the honor and pleasure of speaking with Lisa Trumbull. Lisa is president and CEO of ASIN, a clinically integrated network called the Southern New England Healthcare Organization, or SOAN, S-O-N-E. SOAN was formed in January 2020 to integrate three ACOs in two states. The SIN manages a population of over 200,000 patients, about $1.5 billion in total costs of care. Previously, she worked at Cambridge Health Alliance, building their pop health and value-based structure to the point where about 60% of their business was in some form of risk or alternative payment models. There is one disclaimer that I would just ask you to keep in mind when listening to any conversation about value-based care, and there are lots of them going on right now. But I just want to tuck this in here because I'd, I'd be remiss not to mention it at some point. Dr. My Fam, episode 325, link in the show notes, has put this better than I ever would. She said recently, and this is a direct quote, after a decade of value-based payment contract negotiations in both public and private sectors, I would like to point out that health systems can talk a good value game, but if their organizations push for ever higher unit prices, the word value is meaningless. I've seen trends in unit prices for a given health system outstrip the legitimate savings it produces by reducing volume, which was the plan all along. Dr. Pham is currently writing a piece about this exact topic that's going to appear in AJMC soon, so definitely look out for that. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Lisa Trumbull. Welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you, Stacey. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Accountability and integration together basically means that at every point of service, you got to connect the dots to whatever the patient may need to have happen next. Because obviously accountability, like within one patient encounter, I don't know yeah, what you could right. be accountable for within one 15-minute <laughs> increment. So it does require integration because if you're going to be accountable for an entire episode or a population, like you have to be integrated. If, if you think about it this way, in a non-integrated fashion, I can go in and have my, my knee replaced. The surgeon will do the surgery, send me home. Maybe I'll get a phone call to find out how things are going. Maybe I'll end up in a you know, skilled nursing facility and I'll get an infection and end up in the ED. The surgeon doesn't really know until you either show up at the ED or worse, they end up getting a call in the middle of the night to respond to an emergency. Now, in an integrated fashion, and this is somewhat what CMS was trying to get to with bundles, if, if I'm responsible for Lisa Trumbull's knee, I want to see Lisa ahead of time. I want to know what her comorbidities are. I want to know what could compromise her recovery before I do the surgery. Do the surgery, know exactly where I'm going to put her post-surgery. Is it at home and with what services? Or is it in a post-acute facility with what services? For how long? Set the expectations with Lisa. Do a follow-up visit with her, a post-surgery follow-up visit to understand what's happening with Lisa. I'll also understand what level of durable medical equipment I might need, what assistance I might need in a home. Now, 
that's what I mean by integration. That takes integrating and discussing up front with the primary care provider everything that needs to happen to actually support me during uh, the course of my recovery. Let me lay- layer on here. There was an assumption maybe five, six years ago, that consolidating services under one roof would inherently provide better outcomes. In in fact, I I just got a, a LinkedIn message the other day where someone said this like as a point of fact, that providing specialty pharmacy care under the same roof as the patient got medical care would provide inherently better outcomes. What do you have to say about that? I I think there are plenty of studies that have shown in the provider portion of the healthcare structure, the aggregation of services has done nothing but rise the cost of the services and there's no discernible improvement in quality, right? So that's, I don't know how many studies are published to actually demonstrate that. And I would say the same thing exists on the payer side, that aggregation for, for just for the point of aggregation doesn't necessarily produce better outcomes, whether it's cost or quality. So unless there's some further discussion around how are we going to integrate these services into the delivery of care? And what outcomes do we expect from integrating them? So I would say if I'm looking for some expansion of pharmacy services, I want to know, am I going to be able to improve the outcomes of the patients that come to see me because I'm doing that? Is the quality going to be better? Is the cost going to be lower because it's in a different setting? Those are the questions we should be asking. Right now, we don't ask those questions. What do you expect from the outcome aside from the fact that you're going to aggregate and you're going to keep more of the margin, which is really what most of the consolidation is? Let me just summarize. Aggregation does not equal integration. I mean, it it could, but just because you're aggregating doesn't mean you're integrating. And what's necessary in order to improve patient outcomes is the integration, not the aggregation. Absolutely. The aggregation is the easy part. I know mergers and acquisitions and expansion of business is not is not easy in healthcare, but it's the easier part than forcing the level of integration to improve an outcome of some sort rather than just to improve a bottom line, which is what most there's a lot of venture capital now in healthcare because others see an opportunity in the market for major disruption. But I think most of it's focused on margin generation. I think in the long run, we're going to look back and say, oh, that was a problem because while all this is happening, no one's considering integrating and most of them don't have skin in the game to generate an improvement in cost or quality. There was actually just a big article in Business Insider about UHC relative to this. Zach Cooper has done a ton of research and others, obviously, that found that when there is consolidation in markets that generates one monopoly health system, for example, prices go up while outcomes and right. patient quality do not impre- appreciably improve. So it's not, right. a, it's not a question at this point. This is no one's opinion. It just <laughs> is a right. fact. <laughs> it's just a fact. Yeah, we're not seeing major reductions in healthcare costs anywhere. From an employer perspective or an employee perspective, the healthcare costs have increased significantly over the last 10 years, heading towards like almost 20% of GDP. And out-of-pocket costs has increased, what, 80% or more. It's just not sustainable. And we can't allow this level of unfettered, unmanaged aggregation and mergers and acquisitions to occur without having some responsibility associated with it and some accountability associated with it. Otherwise, it's going it won't we won't correct the trend that we're we're currently facing at all. It'll make it worse. So with this context, that accountability and integration 
is required in order to actually improve patient outcomes while potentially keeping costs in the zone of what is fair, let's say, for services rendered. With that context, what exactly is a clinically integrated network or a CIN? A clinically integrated network is a legal structure. It allows providers, hospitals, and and I say providers using the the big P for providers, which means post-acute, home health, palliative hospice, dialysis centers. It can incorporate all of the continuum in a clinically integrated network. The intention of a clinically integrated network is to, in fact, do what we were just talking about, accept accountability and risk for populations that we intend to manage and integrate across the continuum those services so that we can generate the outcomes that we expect, which is increases in quality and stabilization or where possible reductions in costs. So that's a clinically integrated network. It's a little bit different than an accountable care organization. It's similar in some ways that it can be structured with different participants, mostly hospitals and providers, most of the time providers, uh, that are willing to agree to accept risk for certain populations and do work that's similar to a clinically integrated network. But a clinically integrated network can be an, an ACO. So we're in the Medicare Shared Savings Program. We're technically considered an ACO, an accountable care organization by CMS, even though our legal structure is a clinically integrated network. Could you say that all CINs are ACOs, but not all ACOs are CINs? Yes, yes. Okay. All right. So let's follow a patient through a clinically integrated network just so that maybe we can get a sense of like what exactly a clinically integrated network affords relative to improving outcomes and at the same time having accountability there for for the cost. So let's just say a patient shows up in an integrated care setting. So first of all, can you describe this patient, pick one that you think is going to be illustrative, (laughs) and then let's let's talk about their care journey, but then also their data journey. Let's take a chronic obstructive pulmonary disease patient, right? A COPD patient that maybe has depression. In, In a clinically integrated network, You have that patient coming in routinely into the primary care office to do their pulmonary function testing and understand what's happening with them and what might be happening with their depression so that you can manage and track their COPD routinely. In a clinically integrated network, we would probably, and we have integrated behavioral health into our structure. We're in the process of integrating community-based organizations into our primary care practice structure so that there's a more holistic view of the patient. They, if needed, get a a consult or virtual consult with a behavioral health provider right away to to manage the depression. We have a community-based organization. Are you at home? Do you have all the right supports for food or transportation to be able to get to appointments? Now, let's take that same patient and say there are challenges with their pulmonary function testing and they need to see a pulmonologist. In our network, we would be referring that patient to a pulmonologist that we know and we trust that is operating under evidence-based guidelines and protocols that we have collectively all agreed to. And that includes our primary care providers. We've agreed to certain protocols and screening tools to understand what's happening with the patient. And there's integration from both a, a clinical perspective, but also from a data perspective because our electronic health records are connected between primary care and specialty. Now, let's assume that patient needs to go to the emergency room, which would, we're absolutely trying to avoid. But let's just say that patient goes to the emergency room. In our network, 
that patient would be understood as a as an individual that we're managing the health outcomes for. If it was me, it was Lisa Trumbull, I would be flagged as a patient that has COPD, but is also connected to our organization in a way that we want to understand longitudinally what happens to them, and we want to understand it almost immediately. So they show up in the ED, our complex care manager team gets a alert that says Lisa Trumbull is in the emergency room. Then my team can connect with them and understand, are they going to be admitted? Or are they going to be discharged? If they're going to be discharged from the ED and discharged to home, my team will follow up with them at home and do further assessments to understand whether there's any needs at home. If they get admitted, they'll follow them through their admission. And we'll understand the post-discharge instructions, what medication needs would have to be addressed, what patient education needs to occur. And then they would go home and have follow-up visits with our care team and with our hospitalists in our hospitals. So our care team will do post-discharge a follow-up generally within 48 hours uh, with our hospitalists doing a follow-up within 72 hours. And then we'll follow that patient for, depending on the condition, anywhere from 30 to 90 days post-discharge and then connect them back into primary care so that we've completed the entire loop. Now, if the patient went into a post-acute facility, into a skilled nursing facility, we would follow that patient. We have a post-acute team that would actually see them in the skilled nursing facility, would understand how long we expect them to be there, when we would want them to be discharged, and then would would follow up again with them at home. If for some reason they get home and they need an ambulance or, or something happened, we have relationships with a company called Dispatch Health that could come in and perform a visit and hopefully avoid another emergency room or potential admission. In this particular example, parties mentioned were yes. a, a PCP, a hospital yes. with an emergency room, yeah. a specialist, mm-hmm. the pulmonologist, Correct a sniff potentially, and then also dispatch health or some transportation company. Are all of those entities part of the clinically integrated network? Almost all of them are, when I say part of, they're either a member or they're a partnership arrangement that we put in place to make sure that we could care for our patients. So the behavioral health consult, they're not a, a member per se in our organization, but we have a preferred provider relationship with them where we have a contract in place that where we understand what the expectations are for service between each other. And we understand what they have certain quality and performance expectations. And I would say that's the case for the behavioral health provider. And it's also the case for like a dispatch as an example, where we have relationships that are included in our clinically integrated network. I would say the primary care provider, the specialist, our hospital, the ED provider, home health, and I'm trying to think of what else I might have included in that example. Everything else is considered within our clinically integrated network. So basically it is a closed network then. In advance, all of this paperwork is being done. All these integrations are being done. There's meetings, there's conversations. It is all proactively happening. Nobody is, oh goodness, the patient just went to the ED. Where in heaven should we send them? This is all figured out in advance. There are flowcharts. That's right. That's the whole point of doing this work. You can't do this level of integration in work, Stacey, with every organization. It just physically isn't possible. So you have to begin to look at, well, who are my high quality providers? So a good example is for our skilled nursing facilities. I don't know, there's like about a hundred of them around us. We're contracting with a few of them because A, they've demonstrated from a cost and a quality perspective, they can produce the outcomes that we need. So by definition, that means we're, we're going to expect better care from them. And generally, we get better care from them. We want providers that are able to generate the outcomes that we're expecting. 
and a provider that isn't generating the outcome we expect, we often see higher readmissions, poorer quality, longer lengths of stay, and higher costs. How does the ED even know that this patient that just showed up with exacerbated COPD is a part of this clinically integrated network? What is going to really be required is data integration or interoperability at some level. So everybody knows at the very beginning, including the discharge team at the hospital, there's only five approved sniffs. So easy to say, but in reality, it's really difficult because it's also not only just the that clinically integrated network's patients that are f- flying around. Like one out of every however many patients, these are the rules that need to be followed. How are you managing the data so that no matter which discharge planner gets a hold of that particular patient, how do they know what to do with this particular patient or where they should go? I wish that our technology infrastructure was as good as my Apple phone, but it's not. A lot of times our clinicians don't have the right data in front of them to actually make a decent decision or to understand what to do with these patients. So there is a lot of work that goes into data integration. And as a clinically integrated network, we've had to join 60 EHRs to make this work. So we're, we're looking to our HIE in our state, our health information exchange to help us. Right now, that's work that we're doing. We're integrating our EHRs and that includes the hospital EHRs, so our practices, our hospitals, and whoever else to be able to provide them the information that they need. So in that example, in our world, we have the ability to transmit to the hospital and to our providers a what's called a flag that says, Lisa Trumbull is one of these patients. Our case managers in the hospital understand what preferred SNFs we're using. They understand who is going to visit the patient at home because they know our care managers in the clinically integrated network. And they have a relationship with our care managers. They know the primary care, they know the specialists, and and our care managers serve as as the linchpin or the the glue between all of this, this web that we're weaving a clinically integrated network to make sure that patients get to the right provider at the right time and in the right setting. Okay, so I think I'm cutting on to this. So you have a care manager who, when that patient shows up in the hospital, there's a flag and the care manager gets it too. So your sort of data, this is not left to data integration alone. You actually have some proactive management that's going on. So a human will, will pop up and get involved in that patient's care to ensure that patient moves around the clinically integrated network in a way that's appropriate. um, yeah. Yeah, appropriate. Yeah, that's exactly right. In our clinically integrated network, we have a population health team, uh, nurse care managers, social workers, pharmacists, behavioral health specialists. And then we have relationships with organizations that help fill in the gaps for services that we we should probably shouldn't do or shouldn't replicate. I'm not going to go out and set up an emergency management system to respond to my population. I want a relationship for that. And I'm not going to be able to have every behavioral health provider or access to substance use uh, providers. I need a relationship for that. I'm just not going to be able to have like every possible widget that healthcare delivers to an individual in my clinically integrated network. So I'm out of the gate, put in a position where I need the relationships to make it happen. And the linchpin to actually facilitating a patient through the journey of getting their health care is the care manager who sometimes is a nurse and sometimes is a social worker. Let's talk about the hybrid clinically integrated network, which is a term I keep hearing more and more. In other words, patient goes through a virtual front door and then somehow gets into 
a in-person care setting, thus the hybrid. What's your experience there? What are you seeing? The initial reaction would be, well, that's competitive to us. Instead of really looking at, could it be complementary? There's no, when you think about all the transitions that are occurring in healthcare today and the investments that need to be made and people processes and technology, I can't possibly stand up an entire virtual front door for my clinically integrated network. We have a, a virtual front door, but not as robust as some of these other organizations have. And so partnerships make a lot of sense for bricks and mortar primary care providers or for clinically integrated networks to be able to leverage the skills and the talents of some of these new options that are in the marketplace today, one of which is like a Vera Health with a virtual front door. It gives me the opportunity to build a connection with a virtual provider that could actually use and leverage my network were needed for even their patients. So it can, I think it can be complementary. It certainly could be competitive depending on the market you're in, but I think it could be complementary to have relationships like that. And it would be, let's just say, an employer maybe who would say, look, we're going to have a virtual front door. And then you'd already have a relationship with Vera, for example, and say, okay, we can provide the back ends for that because there's going to be a significant number of times where in-person care does become necessary. And then we can provide that. And there's more to that relationship than just the virtual front door, particularly when you're going direct to employers. So in our market, in our strategy, we we have a partner called Centivo that is basically a third-party administrator. They have that digital front door. They model for employers what our program would look like compared to their you know usual and customary health plan. For one employer in our local market, they in one year had a 35% reduction in costs, similar reductions in ED and inpatient. Now, that's a combination of a clinically integrated network with third-party administrator with a digital front door. I did actually interview Ashok Subramanian from Centivo Encore episode 206 last November, if anyone is interested in more on that. From what I'm understanding, where that integration point actually happens is at the TPA level with an employer. So when the employer installs a Centivo or a third-party administrator plan that includes a virtual front door, that virtual plan is constructed with you in it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's constructed with us in it and in other partners in our region to be able to provide appropriate access and options for our patients. But the digital front door is typically the Centivos of the world or some other organization like that that also provides virtual access to other tools and HRAs and different screening tools and and. Uh, things for patients to be able to interface with and manage uh, the care they need for themselves and their family. Now, unique situation of having a relationship like we do with Centivo is that it, it allows us as a healthcare provider to not be caught in the middle of that negotiation process of we insurers are selling to the employers and you therefore need to agree to whatever terms we put on the table. It allows us to actually have conversations directly with employers to figure out how to make things work for them. And I think that's a reasonable direction to consider in the marketplace these days. The big takeaway that I have from this whole conversation is that everyone is sitting around the table proactively. Everyone's viewpoints are represented and that there is actual collaboration that's transpiring. It's not this sort of power play in which whoever gets their hands in the employer's wallet is dictating the terms to everybody else to everyone's detriment, mainly the patient and the employer. (laughs) Right. The other thing it allows is an opportunity for a conversation about services that go beyond healthcare. Do I have 
the access that I need for that employer? Do they maybe need occupational health services? Does that employer need someone to help administer vaccines for their for their employees? Is the employer even looking at, do they have influencers that are impacting their employee population and thereby impacting the productivity of their employees? You can't even have that conversation today. You can't talk to an employer about, let me see how much behavioral health and mental health support do you actually need? Or you know, the type of employees that you have live in circumstances that afford them the opportunity to be able to have optimized health. So what can we do to impact that? Where, what community-based organizations can we bring into the discussion? Uh, where can we put additional services to help their employees? And all of that comes full circle in better productivity in addition to lower costs of care. Yeah, now that I think about it, and it sounds crazy to say that I never really thought about this before, it is weird that providers have no seat at the table with an employer. Because the payers always disintermediate that relationship. You've got brokers and payers who are sitting with employers, but then the providers are just like somewhere else, right? And not being part of that conversation has certainly consequences because providers are the only ones that represent that set of experience and and points of view. If we think about the healthcare chain here, you have purchasers on one side, the employers, some cases the individuals, and you have the people that are providing the services on the other side, completely separated, as you said, from each other, and a whole bunch of relationships in the middle of that that actually don't touch patients, that don't have anything to do with the delivery of care. So relative to everything that we've been talking about, if clinically integrated networks become a greater portion of the healthcare delivery network, where you have very closed networks, because effectively, if a patient's in a clinically integrated network, from what I'm understanding, patients are only going very certain places. And the whole idea is to keep them out of the hospital. So you don't have patients just kind of showing up over there. The heads in beds is, is just necessarily going to diminish if clinically integrated networks are doing their thing. If you think about the direct contracting efforts that CMS has underway today, if done right and organized correctly, that has the ability actually to move the marketplace in a significant way, because now you're talking about super clinically integrated networks being organized, multiple clinically integrated networks or risk structures like clinically integrated networks together in a direct contracting structure could move the Medicare market pretty quickly. And that is something you clinically integrated networks like you've got your eye on and you're joining and thinking about and got it. That's right. It's in your strategic plan this year. Yeah, it's in our strategic plan. The question is, what year? I think it remains to be seen with the current structure of the direct contracting program because we're already in Medicare shared savings. To move to test this at this point seems a little bit too early. Southern New England Health Care Organization. Where can people go to learn more information? They can go to health. Lisa Trumbull, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Stacy, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.